Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends, and welcome back, and thanks again for coming by. Now, we all had our mothers to watch over us. In fact, it was hard for any of us who have lost our mothers to see the world where they wouldn't be there. Well, that is, until they weren't. The doting kindness of and careful upbringing bestowed upon us by our mothers is truly a gift from above, and those of us who had mothers like that are very thankful. I know I sure am. There are those mothers who take it a few steps further, though, maybe creating a situation where they're just a smidge overprotective. In fact, so overprotective with a child that it completely upsets a child's whole apple cart of life. Kind of makes me think of Norman Bates from the movie Psycho when I hear that, don't it? You? Uh, well, come on in, set a spell. Let me tell you about a mother that just didn't know when to quit, even after it was way too late to quit. Now, folks, 1958 was a really great year for this country and maybe the end of humanity though it just depends on however you decide to look at it rock and roll had hit the earth and was in its heyday i can only imagine how it was i do remember the beatles coming to america and watched on tv as people went completely nuts at the airport when they landed i remember asking my dad what he thought about that he smiled real big and said that ain't nothing you should have seen what happened when rock and roll first showed up he said it wasn't long before everybody had, as they said then, their own kick going. Wild man Jerry Lee Lewis became the first rocker bad boy when he married his 13-year-old second cousin. No wonder the parents of teenagers were worried about this rock and roll thing, wasn't it? That uh, This was about the time that kids and their parents tried to learn how to keep their brand new hula hoops a-spinning. Yeah, I tried that too didn't go too well for me i just didn't have the motion in the ocean as they say and i always seemed to have a little bit too much around the middle anyway but there was one small family in santa barbara california during the summer of 1958 whose members weren't having much fun at all in fact they were 
headed into a tailspin resulting from a nosedive straight to the devil's hot seat, and I mean literally. Elizabeth Ann Ma Duncan was one of those doting hands-on mothers that we mentioned, maybe just a little bit too handsy on. Ma's son, 29-year-old Frank, was the apple of her eye, or more accurately, the object of her utter and complete obsessive existence. Yes, I said 29-year-old Frank. Frank still lived at home with Ma, and they were a cozy little twosome, which was exactly how Ma planned to keep it. That's when Ma's dreams were flushed right down the toilet of life as Frank, God forbid, fell in love with a pretty young nurse. It's in 1957, Frank, who was an attorney, by the way, decided that it was time to strike out on his own and become a man and leave the home and he, that he actually shared with Ma. After all, he was a successful young man and he needed to cut the mother's apron strings and go out on his own. So he told Ma about his plans and Ma's reaction. Well, it was to throw a dying duck fit, flopping out on the floor and playing dead. After poor Frank realized that she was faking, he stepped, she stepped it up a notch and marched herself directly into the bedroom and downed a whole bottle of sleeping pills. Ma figured that if her love wasn't good enough for Frank, maybe a good old-fashioned dose of guilt would change his mind. Of course, Ma had it all figured correctly. Frank canceled all his plans to move out, at, long, <clears throat> at least long enough for Ma to get well again, to put it that way. There was one part of the plan that Ma hadn't counted on, though. During her recovery in the hospital, Ma had an attractive 29-year-old nurse named Olga Kupsik who took care of her. When Frank got a look at her, he fell head over heels in love. He stuck closest to Ma, but got even closer to Olga. Ma didn't need her glasses to see what was going on right under her nose. Ma would do anything to hold on to Frank, and you better believe it when I say anything. Frank started dating Olga, and Ma didn't take it well at all. Nearly every day, Olga received a phone call from Ma telling her to leave Frank alone. When the threats didn't work, Ma stepped it up again by making death threats. Ma even contacted a manager of Olga's apartment, talked her way in because she wanted to see if any Frank's clothes were there. Now, this is what we in the mountains call being nosy folks. Now, apparently she found something that rubbed the rhubarb the wrong way because on her way out of the building, she told her manager, she isn't going to have him. I will kill her if it's the last thing I do. Ma then went full whack-a-doodle when she found out that Frank and Olga had actually got married on June 20th, 1958. She told everybody within earshot that she would never allow the couple to live together. Frank was so used to being dominated by Ma that when she turned up at the newlyweds' apartment one evening and demanded Frank to leave with her, he slid out of the chair like a whip pup, crawled across the floor, out the apartment, and into the car and went back home with Ma. I just wonder if he had him a car seat and a ninny baba waiting on him in the car. Yeah, poor man. Olga should have thrown Frank's stuff all over the front lawn and filed for divorce right there on the spot, but she stuck it out. During that summer, Frank said that he was going back and forth like a yo-yo. Where I come from, we'd call that a man need to grow a pair, because mustard seeds does not a pair make. But apparently Frank registered just enough on the testosterone meter to be a, called a man after all, and 
had eked out just enough alone with time with Olga for her to become pregnant. Ma, now over the deep end in denial, told Barbara Reed, whom she had known for a few years, that it was, wasn't Frank's baby. Olga had become pregnant by another man. Ma said Olga was trying to trap Frank. What with him being such a prize, I guess, and all. She offered Ms. Reed $1,500 to help kill her own pregnant daughter-in-law. Ms. Reed turned right around and called Frank. She told him about her conversation with his mother and how Ma was registering full moon bat on the deviant scale. Frank immediately jumped in his car and again moved back home with Ma like her house was on fire, I reckon. At, at least he could drive by now, I reckon, and by himself. Uh, but in mid-August 1958, Ma, because she still hadn't done enough already, came up with another sideways plan to end Frank's marriage. She talked to an ex-con named Ralph Winterstein, who acted as Frank in a fraudulent scheme to get her son's marriage annulled. Ma and Ralph, acting as Olga and Frank, presented themselves in an uncontested hearing during which Ralph, as the plaintiff, in the case testified that Ma had not lived with him since their marriage and that she had no intention of doing so. Sure enough, as unbelievable as it was, Frank slash Ralph was granted an annulment from uh, Olga slash Ma. So, yeah, that was odd enough, but the annulment was only the first step, though. Ma, as she saw it, still hadn't done enough. Next, the crazy old woman had a friend approach Mr. Winterstein, you know, the fake Frank, and asked if the man would be willing to take care of Olga. By take care of, Ma no doubt meant to make her leave <laughs> the hard way in a box. Mr. Winterstein, of course, politely declined and promptly stayed away from Ma. He would have reported the incident to the cops, but he was already too afraid of being nailed for the fraudulent annulment, so I guess fraud was just about as far as he was going to go. It took weeks, but finally a woman named Emma Short put Ma in touch with two guys who were dumber than they were mean, but still mean enough to kill Olga for her. They were 21-year-old Louis Moya and 26-year-old Gus Baldonado. The two hitmen, and I use that term very lightly, were told that Olga was blackmailer. And of course, they couldn't have cared less. They didn't need any motivation other than money to brutally murder a pregnant woman. The when twos and YF just didn't matter to them. Now, Ma agreed to pay them $3,000 once the job was done, and then another 3000 within the next year, or six months or so, maybe within a year. But $3,000 in 1958 was almost 30000 in today's money. The plan was for Hitman Moya and Baldonado to kidnap Olga and drive her across the border to Tijuana and rub her out down there. Ma gave them $175 for their expenses. I reckon that was the going rate for a retainer for a couple of hitmen back in the day. But on the evening of November 17, 1958, the two heartless scumbags rented a broken-down old car from a friend for $25. They drove to Olga's apartment, and hitman Moya rang the bell while getaway driver Baldonado waited in the car. When Olga came to the door, the deviant Moya told her that Frank was drunk, and he was passed out, and he needed help getting him into the house. Olga, pregnant and worried about Frank's condition, accompanied Louis Moya out to the car where she expected to find her husband Frank curled up in the drunken stupor in the back seat of the car. 
she thought. She saw him stretched out in the back seat of the beat-up Chevy, so she reached in to awaken him, and then everything went black. Louie Moya had bashed Olga over the head hard enough to knock her completely out, and Gus Baldonado reached out and dragged her through the back window of the car into the back seat. But Olga was a fighter with a compelling reason to live. Whenever she regained consciousness and began to scream and struggle, dumb and dumber, beat her in the head again until she passed out. On the way out of town, Louis and Gus realized that the 1948 Chevrolet that they had rented from a friend for $25 wasn't about to make a trip to Tijuana. So they headed south on Highway 101 and drove a few miles to, to Castillas Road where Gus recalled using the road to get to a winery. By the time they had stopped, they were almost seven miles into Ventura County, and it was quiet, dark, and deserted. I guess that's what you look for when you're a hit man with a change of plans. That's where the gangster wannabes dragged the poor pregnant Olga out of the car and down over a small embankment. They couldn't shoot her because they broke the gun, beating her on the head. So instead, they took turns strangling her until Professor Baldonado, who had been an army medic, decided that she had had to be dead. He told Louis that he knew dead when he saw it. And the men were so brilliantly well-planned that they had forgot to bring shovels so they could dig a shallow grave in the soft silt, and they had to do it near a drainage hole and with their bare hands like a hound dog digging under a fence. Then they buried Olga and her unborn child in there. Olga was still wearing the wedding ring that Frank had given her when, the, to their shock and horror, the two men, she, uh, when she was being covered up, she sat right up and asked where Frank was. Apparently, she she must have been, or they must have been in shock, or she must have been in shock, and thought she woke up in bed. She was immediately clocked over the head with a couple of rocks. Mr. Baldonado, again, was a lousy medic, and he was a hit man, as he was a hit man. Once again, Olga still hadn't been dead when they covered her body up, but he declared her dead again. And uh, with the dirt from the second time they covered her up, and uh, left her in the hole. The beating still hadn't killed Olga, though, and neither had the attempted strangulation. She suffocated to death in the dirt. Olga had been unconscious but alive when they buried her. Olga was discovered missing by a friend and colleague of hers, Edlin Curry, chief surgical nurse at St. Francis Hospital. She went to Olga's apartment after the young nurse had failed to show up for it important op- operation because she too was a surgical nurse. What strikes me as odd is that Frank, her own husband and father of their child-to-be, wasn't the one who discovered her missing. Now, Miss Curry was alarmed when she found the door of the apartment standing open. All the lights were on and the bed covers were turned back, but the bed hadn't been slept in. Just a few more minor details missed by the hitman, I guess. Olga was nowhere to be found. Olga's landlady, who refused to be identified by name for fear of retribution, told the newspapers that she met Ma Duncan on one occasion and she had come by looking for Olga. The landlady said that Ma was a stark raven lunatic and screamed that she would kill Olga if it was the last thing she ever did. Then Ma told the landlady that her son and Olga weren't married at all, that they were living in sin. When the landlady challenged her, Ma snapped. 
All you have to do is check with Ventura. The marriage has been annulled. The landlady told police and reporters that Olga was deathly afraid of her mother-in-law and that she frequently moved to try to stay away from the old woman. Upon being notified of her disappearance, Olga's father, Elias, turned up and went over to the Santa Barbara police and he turned the letters he had over to, to he received from his missing daughter telling that Ma Duncan was constantly an unending, full bellowing air pipe of death threats. And Elias, not sure if he was madder than he was fearful of it for his daughter, was soon on his way from Canada to Santa Barbara himself to help find his daughter. The fraudulent annulment was dug up when attorney Hal Hammonds unwittingly drew up the papers from Ma and a mysterious man named Ralph. Mr. Hammonds had rushed the annulment through the same day as the, a courtesy because Ma was Frank's mother. Ma must have been pretty good to pull that one off on a lawyer, folks. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend, and we are doing a world of murder mystery and legend today, but we're still Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. I'll be right back. When Mr. Hammonds called Frank and asked if he had represented him in an annulment proceedings, Frank told him absolutely not. Mr. Hammonds contacted a Venturi district, district attorney investigator, Clarence Henderson, who began to check out the information he'd been given. The DA's investigation revealed that the annulment was a fraud perpetrated by Ma Duncan. Police then dashed over to Ma's house like the hawk of death in a cancer ward, and they pounced on and arrested Ma for bribing a witness to influence testimony and falsifying a legal paper, forgery with intent to defraud, and aiding and abetting Ralph Frank and in falsifying statements under oath. While Ma Duncan was sitting in jail staring at the wall wondering who hit John, the two morons that she hired to murder her daughter-in-law were pounced on, detained, and dragged downtown to answer some questions about the disappearance of Olga. Police refused to say if the men were part of the inquiry into Olga's disappearance, but they sure as heck were. Now, Ma appeared in the court represented by who else but her poor son, Frank. In fact, the two walked in together hand in hand. Frank successfully won a Ma a reduction in bail from $50,000 to $5,000. He argued that the Santa Barbara and Ventura County authorities needed to put up or shut up with their insinuations that his mother had anything to do with the mysterious disappearance of his wife. Ma refused to comment on any phase of the case on the advice of her attorney slash son who, from all indications, teetered on the edge of whack-a-doodle himself. Now, Frank was either a complete clueless idiot, delusional, or, more likely, incomplete denial regarding his mother's involvement in Olga's disappearance. He told reporters that he believed his wife to be alive. <laughs> he went on to say, truly, that is my hope. At one time, she threatened to cause me some unpleasant publicity, but this would seem to be going to the extreme. Now, reporters asked Frank if he'd go back and live with his wife if she returned. He said, I sure would. Frank was also asked if his mother had been unhappy with his marriage to Olga or had tried to break it up. He replied, let's just say she hindered its development. Well, Frank, I'd say so. 
How'd Frank feel about Miles' possible involvement in Olga's disappearance? He stated that he didn't believe for a minute that Ma had any guilty knowledge of it. Since the time of Olga's disappearance and before she was taken into custody, I cross-examined Ma closely about Olga's disappearance. She said she knew absolutely nothing about it, and I know her, and I, and she wouldn't lie to me. I'm quite certain that she had nothing to do with it. Frank had no insight into why Ma had taken a drastic measure of faking an annulment, and he refused to make any comment on that one. It's almost like the poor man had been living under a rock out in the middle of nowhere, but the man probably looked in like an albino lizard crawling out into the sunlight for the first time, in fact. But on December 19, 1958, and appearing to come straight out of the blue, Ma, Elizabeth Ann Maud Duncan was formally accused of hiring Augustine Baldino and Louis Moya for $3,000 to murder her daughter-in-law. The cops had kept a tight lid on their investigation of Olga, Olga's kidnapping, that is, when finally, on December 21st, 1958, they went public in an appeal to help them find the missing bride's body. If Santa Claus had any presents for Frank Duncan, he was going to have to a tough time finding them because he mysteriously disappeared on Christmas Eve. Uh, District Attorney Roy Gustafson would have better luck with the subpoena requiring Frank to testify before the grand jury. Ma's son was found laying low in Hollywood apartment. I guess by then, the truth of the matter had hit him like a fully loaded semi-truck. According to testimony, during the grand jury hearing, Ma had a approached at least four people with various plans to kill Olga, and every one of them, including Frank, whose memory of it all wasn't too good, tore Ma a new one. The testimony given during the grand jury hearing resulted in the indictment of Elizabeth Duncan and her two conspirators, Louis Moya and Gus Baldonado, for the slaying of Ma's pregnant daughter-in-law, Olga. Ma did one of the only things that she could do under the circumstances. She decided to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, Ma was interviewed by several doctors, and she even submitted to a brainwave test, but nothing about her test indicated that she was insane. She was just plain mean, Dr. Louis R. Nash, assistant director of Camarillo State Hospital, described Ma, Ma Duncan as a plain-out, flat sociopath, sociopath, psychopath, and a pathological liar, but said that she was as sane as a judge because she knew exactly what she was doing. Now, on January 30th, 1959, Louis Moya withdrew his not guilty plea and entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. I reckon because if it's good for Ma, it's good for him. Now, Gus Baldonado wasn't about to be left holding the bag, so he did the same thing. And just like Ma, it didn't work for either of them either. So one of the most difficult tasks was to find jurors who could be fair and impartial. During voir dire, or voir dire as they call it in Texas, many of the prospective jurors revealed that they had already made up their minds and felt like the defendants were as guilty as the day was long. So, in fact, Ma and Frank received hate mail. They got a news photo of them together 
with about every demeaning insult that you could come up with scrawled in ink all over it, saying, Hope you hang. You should have been your mother's abortion and cutthroat, and I could kill you. Apron strings, mommy's boy, all that stuff wrote all over the picture of him and his mom together. The jury of eight women and four men was finally seated, though. It was, as it should have been, a death penalty case, and the jurors were charged with determining Ma's guilt or innocence. There was bad news for Ma. Three of them had admitted to believing her guilty before hearing a word of testimony. When Ma got the news that the jurors had been selected, she was asked if she thought that she could be a fair and impartial or the jury could be fair and impartial during the trial. And she didn't think so. She said that there were too many people against her. The trial testimony was as gut-wrenching as anybody had ever heard. In particular, Louis Moya just couldn't bring himself to shut up. Moya said that he and Baldonado had been introduced to Ma Duncan through Miss Esperanza Esquivel, the operator of the Tropical Cafe in Santa Barbara. Now, Miss Esquivel would, would act as a go-between. Moya testified, Ma Duncan told me that she had acid, rope, and sleeping pills. If we decided that we could use them, just let her know. The pills were to be for an overdose, the ropes of they could tire and the acid to disfigure Olga's face and remove fingerprints if needed. The plan the two hitmen came up with was to kidnap Olga and take some of her clothes to make it look like she'd gone on vacation. They were going to dispose of her near Tijuana. Now, my pond ring to give Mr. Moya and $175 for his expenses. About the night of the murder, he described the whole thing in vivid detail. Then it was Mr. Baldonado's turn, and he wasn't nearly as brash as Mr. Moya, and his testimony provided some cooperation, but he seemed to forget a lot of the details. Ah, uh, you reckon? Finally, Ma, still trying to control everything, took the stand. She testified that she had once plotted to tie up Frank and kidnap him. She felt that if she got him away from Olga, he'd snap out of, out of his stupor and back to his senses. However, she continued to deny that she threatened Olga or ever intended her any harm. The courtroom was thrown into a complete uproar when Miles' past was dragged out into the open, kicking and screaming all the way. The DA proceeded to shred the old woman right on the stand where she had been married about 16 times and hadn't annulled or divorced any of them. And you believe that. The DA also revealed that she had six children. Ma acknowledged 10 of the marriages, but she said that she didn't remember the other six. <laughs> Good Lord. Next to take the stand was poor Frank, the rubber spine wonder. He testified that I loved my mother and I still love her. And he continued to support Ma's story throughout the trial. One of the trial shockers came when Ma was asked by the DA if she had worked as a madam to put Frank through law school. She shouted, no. The DA persisted in his questioning. Well, that was your occupation, wasn't it? And Ma responded, I didn't consider it an occupation. It was a position. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was a position, Ma. But when she was asked about her relationship with Frank, Ma said it was one of love and devotion. The DA asked if she loved Frank more than her other children. She replied, why, yes, I do. Hmm. While Ma's personality was revealed during the trial, it was difficult to get a handle on Frank. 
what he knew, when he knew it, and exactly what kind of a man he was. He was in law school when Ma was running the brothel, and he must have known what was going on, you'd think. Well, when did he feel, well, how did he feel about that? Well, he never said, but what, what was even more surprising was that Frank married again secretly during Ma's trial. If there was one person in the case that was a moon bat, it was probably Frank, and no wonder. On March 16, 1959, after four hours and 51 minutes of deliberation, Ma was found guilty. Louis Moya and Gus Baldonado, well, they were found guilty too. All three were handed death sentences. Frank fought for his mother right up to the end. In fact, he wasn't at her August 8, 1962 execution because he was in San Francisco at the federal court arguing, trying to get him to let her off the hook. Ma Duncan's last recorded words were, Where's Frank? I want to see my son. <laughs> of course it was. What else would you say? Mr. Moya and Mr. Baldonado were executed on the same day in the same gas chamber sitting side by side. No need to waste extra cyanide capsules when you can get a twofer, I guess. But this was the last time three people were executed on the same day in California. Frank, well, he continued to be an attorney in California and still makes an occasional court appearance, though mostly retired now. No word on whether he's still married. I hope you've enjoyed our hearing our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please. Please join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else comes up. I'll be back real soon with another episode of the World of Murder Mystery and Legend, brought to you by Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. See you then.